This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host for the Planet Microcap Podcast. And joining me right now is a very special guest. Uh, he, he's joining me all the way from Singapore uh, via Zoom. You know, we're not, we're not in person. This is via Zoom, of course. Uh, it's a gentleman that you uh, probably know best from his Twitter handle, at uh, Slingshot Cap, Slingshot Capital. His name, I am revealing, a little drum roll here, is, uh, is Kelvin Sita. He is from Slingshot Capital. He actually has a couple other titles as well, and uh, we're, I'm very excited to uh, have him here today. So, Kelvin, thank you for joining me, and uh, how, how you holding up? Hey, Robert, it's been nice. Um, you know, in Singapore, we are lifting off the, you know, circuit. You know, in Singapore, we call it the circuit breaker kind of thing. So, there's phase one, phase two, phase three. Now, we're in phase one, so things are getting a lot better. I think uh, people are going back to schools. Uh, businesses are operating again and you know now you know you can go out to buy your favorite ice cream your desserts whatever it is because for I think almost one month we, we didn't have any of that <laughs> yeah no it was I, I I think I remember that Singapore I, I think Singapore was on complete lockdown like you can't go go to the markets or anything like that right yeah I mean like just that necessity stuff it's, it's all right but anything extra it's all had to be closed down but I think we made a remarkable recovery and things are back on track again. So pretty good. That's, that's great to hear. So as I said, I'm, we're talking, I'm talking to you. You're based in Singapore. This has been a marathon day. I actually, it's one of my favorite days. I interviewed at 8 a.m. Pacific and now 8 p.m. Pacific. So this is, this is, this is the jam. I love this stuff. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> so so, so uh, Kelvin, as we always do here, I, I'd love to get your background. Tell us a little bit more about what led to your passion for investing. Sure. Well, um, Robert, you know, growing up as a young kid um, in a middle-class income in an Asian country, you know, I, I think uh, my family was doing relatively well, but it was my experience in high school that made me want to work a bit harder, you know, to strive for a better life, like most of most people. So, you know, when I was in high school, I think I, I went to a school that was a bit, uh, I think like for a better work, I think, uh, uh, prestigious so people my friends were wearing, wearing uh, branded clothing they had better travel experiences and to be honest like coming from where i was you know i you know that made me feel a bit envious or maybe not a bit a lot all right i feel very envious so that got me started to think about hey you know how could i make more money so without telling my parents you know i started buying clothes from you know um, united states and selling them in singapore so um, the likes, you know, like G-Star, Fatberry, Ben Sherman, Armani Exchange, and many others. So I was pretty shocked because there wasn't a lot of people doing that. And I did that for almost a year and, you know, had a bit of good money. But, you know, to me, I was still a student back then. And I was at the fork root of my life that I said, you know, should I focus on my study or should I do this as a side hustle and continue on this business? But, you know, the truth was this. Um, I wanted to get into a prestigious uh, placement in Singapore's top universities. I wanted to get a government scholarship. So the thing is that I gave up the entire business, although that made me 
a bit of money and I could afford the branded clothing. And when I went out with my friends, you know, that made me feel a bit better. So, you know, growing up, we tend to be a bit self-conscious and we tend to base our self-worth on materialistic possession. But subsequently, when I went to, you know, in Singapore, there's this thing called the Polytechnic, which is like, a, I think like pre-college kind of thing, pre-university. So back then, I was studying uh, portfolio management, security analysts. So it's really about understanding how stocks work. And, you know, the truth was, you know, I, although I was ranked top few in my cohort, but I always wanted to be the top. And I tried for so many semesters, but I simply couldn't get the top because maybe, you know, there was always someone that's smarter than you. And I, and I spoke to my lecturer about this and he said this, you know, um, you know, what's the amazing thing is that most of your classmates, he told me this, right? Most of your classmates are learning to get grades, but they did not experience what's investing like. So he said, you know, why not give yourself a shot? You know, you know it doesn't matter if you're young, you know, um, just ask your parents for a brokerage account. I'm sure they'll give it to you. Just put your, put your own money into it, right? And he gave me a book called uh, What Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. And that got me off a very good start because I think that book essentially was telling me that anyone could succeed in investing. You know, anywhere I go, I see investors of all backgrounds, of all races from any background with or without finance degree, and they were doing well. So that really got me off a good start. And, you know, with that, I think that's how, you know, investing started. It was actually from a space where I was feeling very inferior. I was just trying to figure out how to, you know, want to make more money. And that led me to study business. And honestly, I did not even know whether I have a passion in business anyway. I just knew that, okay, if I, if I sign up for a business school, uh, class, degree, whatever it is, that will lead me to wealth. So that was very naive, right? But when I went there, subsequently the things I studied, um, you know, got me really intrigued, right? And that's how I excel. And, and, I, and to me, it seems like there's a natural affinity towards business, towards investing. And that got me, um, you know, getting good grades and eventually told myself this, right? Like, I cannot just experience uh, investing through books, I got to do it myself. So being a young kid, I think that was a bit frightening. Um, but I knew that I wanted to create a better life for myself. And, you know, that's how I got started. <laughs> that's, that's so awesome. I mean, so really, it was born out of a, a, a sense of just, you know, I want to take myself up to the next level. And, and it was really an evolution. It went from, you know, I want to take myself up to the next level. I'm going to study business. And then within that, investing. So what, what was it when you first got into investing that you, you know, how, really, how did you get into it? I mean, were you investing in U, U.S. equities or equities at all? I mean, what, what was it that, you know, while you were in it, were you like, you know, I'm kind of hooked. I'm going to keep doing this. Um, so the thing is that uh, when it comes to all investing, we really wanted, I mean, for, personally for myself, I'm, I'm rather uh, risk adverse. So um, I invested like 1005 to a company based in Singapore. Uh, so it's Singapore Equities. And I think I was pretty lucky because a few days after they reported a, a great result, I think the share price increased by 20% thereabout. Um, and, you know, from there, I made about like close to about, I think uh, it was $400 thereabouts. And that shocked me a bit, right? When the first time you experience that kind of tremendous gain, uh, I wouldn't say it's tremendous, but I would say that you just made money like that, like looking up on data, you know, doing some work, two hours of work, and, and there you go, you know, money is being made. And I think back about the, the days where I had to make uh, customers who are buying my clothing, you know, and sometimes they, you know, may not turn up and the whole, my time to travel to, to their place, you know, is wasted. I think about how many clothes I have to sell to make that kind of money, you know. So 
it, it, it really cemented the idea to tell me that, you know, as I grow, you know, I need to find a way to scale my money even better. So um, that really got me started. And to me, I always, I always believe in, you know, this saying that seeing is believing. So since then, you know, whatever I've gotten throughout my life, you know, like for example, you talk about in Singapore, all males have to go through a mandatory military service for two years. And although my pay wasn't a lot, but every single time I got my pay, I was buying every single investment book that I could land my hands on, right? But I was pretty lucky that I had time to read as well. So, um, you know, um, I, I think I eventually got, you know, to a state where, you know, my results gotten quite good. Like, for example, I could share with you that, you know, sometimes the military trainings might not be very fun, could be tiring, mentally draining as well. Uh, you know, I, I feel like the day was so bad. But when I went back home and I checked, you know, you know, okay, this is a bit, uh, uh, very naive thinking, right? But when I went back, I saw the stock price. I went out. I felt like, oh, my day was okay. Today is a happy day. You know, I erased <laughs> every single uh pain that I went through, right? Um, uh, but yeah, since then on, you know, I I really got a lot more serious um when it comes to investing and and you know, I I have never regretted since then. And you know, the biggest passion, I mean, the biggest gift that I think uh, I receive is that you know I could turn my passion into something that I would see myself doing for, a lot, uh, for, for, the, for the rest of my life. So I'm, I'm pretty thankful that I spotted, you know, this, this hobby when I was young because I think as I'm speaking to many people, some of them only discovered it much later in their lives. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so let's, so let's fill the gap. So <clears throat> we're filling the gap from um, during your time in the military to where we're at now. So um, did, you, did you take any jobs in, in finance or anything like that? Or right out of the military, you're like, no, I, I'm full-time investor. Let me just go from there, you know? So, so how did you get to where you're at today? Yep. Um, so when I was in army, I think towards the, the, the part where I'm almost completing my, my tour, that means my service, um, I was still posting very frequently on forums, investing forums in Singapore as well. And there was, um, financial education company that was doing a very interesting um, uh, um, teaching, right? They were teaching people how to invest, stuff like that. And I felt that resonated very deeply within me because I felt like if when I was starting out, there was something that is similar kind of school that teaches me how to invest, my life would have been a lot better. So I hop on um, um, to, to actually go and find out more about them, spoke to the guys over there. And I think that um, you know, maybe the founder must have seen something in me and somehow or rather he persuaded me to give up my government scholarship, <laughs> persuaded me to give up my uh, prestigious university placement. And, you know, getting scholarship in Singapore context, in an Asian context is something that is uh, you know, very prestigious. To give it up like that, I think it's like committing a sin, right? But I felt like, you know, investing was my, my life and I felt that this could work out for my life. And it was a calculated move, right? Because I say that if I were to join his company and if I fail, it's okay. You know, as long as I have my portfolio to cushion my expenses, right? So I decided to give it a go. And, you know, I, I enjoyed it, you know, because I was being paid to research. So that was really fun. I was being paid to share. I was being paid to see ordinary folks who have no knowledge being transformed, right? And to have that certainty in their life that you know eventually if they go on to this path eight years nine years they can be financially free so that was something that was really really nice and subsequently from there they started a a, a, a new business segment that's doing funds 
and you know I was there uh, also under their chief investment officer, and I had a great time because I would say my my CIO was someone that's very you know, for the lack of a better word, again, I would say it's quite harsh because at, at 6 o'clock, that's where we knock off. He'll just give me a new assignment. At 9 o'clock, he asked me, so what's, what's the update? So it's really, really tough, really tough training. But, you know, when I went out to meet my investor's friend after, you know, half a year, they said, hey, you know, Kevin, you have grown a lot. So I was actually very thankful for him because he trusted me with uh, a lot of, a big percentage of the uh, AUM. So um, that grew, that, that made me grow a lot. And eventually, I decided to say, you know, um, my wealth have grown to a certain size. I think that I worked really hard since I was young. I literally had no childhood, but that's pretty sad. So I say that, you know, it's time to give up this job and let's travel around the world quite a bit. And then there's a lot of messages coming through Facebook, Instagram, asking me, you know, whether could I do something similar to teach them investing? So I said, okay. So I came back to Singapore, started small class and it worked out really well. In fact, I was fearful, like, you know, although I'm an investor, but to ask me to run a business is totally different. So I had great team members. And today, this is where we are. Uh, the company is almost two years old. We have a team of seven. So um, I am enjoying every bit of it because sometimes the, the people that come through the class, they are also people from the industry. So when I needed help from them, they could supply me with information that I could never get my hands on. So I think investing brings across people from all walks of life, really with a common goal of you know achieving financial success. So that's what we are here to aiming to do right yeah yeah no i mean look i i think i think from what i've experienced just in my own life teaching also just helps you so whatever you're teaching you're obviously going to be a little bit you're going to be passionate about it so it's just yep. it's, it's going to help you in 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 your learning curve because we're all always learning i think that's a good transition you know I, i'd love to learn a little bit more about your investing philosophy that you've developed over these years so what what is it Yep. Um, you know, I've been thinking this for quite some time and um, that's a good question because throughout my life, I think in the earlier days when I did not get to know some people, my, my philosophy just didn't really work, didn't really get the results that I wanted. Um, so I've been reading, um, you know, listening to your podcast as well. Um, we have some wonderful guests. Um, you know, so what really worked well for me, I think it isn't just running the numbers or the financial models because um, essentially that's what everyone is doing. But ultimately, isn't it true that I think as businesses, as just organized people coming together. So I think that, you know, when it comes to analyzing people or the people element is very underrated and probably no one cares about it a lot. Um, so looking back, you know, if I think about the Buffett days, you know, why did Buffett actually had tremendous outsized returns was that he was really... Um, keen to get information. So he would travel, buy a train ticket, you know, travel to companies HQ and, and get the balance sheet, get a financial statement. And that was how, you know, he could simply make a lot of returns through investing in net nets, right? So a lot of the time, I would think that Buffett actually spends time going out and meeting people, which led him to his outperformance. But today, if you look at how the world has changed, you know, the internet has made a lot of information accessible, right? Your 10K, your 10Q, your 8Ks, whatever it is, um, is very accessible. So most of us are just sitting in front of a computer running models. And while that's okay, I think it's even more important to get out there, to call someone, to chat with the employees, to chat with other investors, get connected as many people as possible who are doing business with the um, listed company. So that is one thing which I felt 
it's really important um, that have actually helped me gain a lot of conviction in the companies but that I invest in. But you know, apart from that, I think um, in terms of qualitative uh, measurements, I think that's actually more important because the way I look at it is that quantitative numbers always tend to be the effect of good qualitative factors, right? For example, you have a great product that have a great um, value proposition and customers love it. You have a good marketing. This is our qualitative uh, factors, which is, you know, the cost. But what's the effect? The effect is that because customers love it, your numbers will show up good. You have a good profit margin and you have great referral system, right? That actually causes this business to do well. So because of that, you know, it, it, it took me almost like two years to ditch my old framework because in the past, I was just running numbers, doing screening, and I thought that, hey, that, that's going to be something that, you know, would give me the returns that I would want. But I would say that today, things are so advanced, anyone can run a model, anyone can do a screen. So <clears throat> what's more important right now is that I tend to focus more on the qualitative measure. And sometimes, even though the co companies may not be profitable, but when I analyze certain matrix and I say that, hey, um, they are on the right path, um, uh, this is metric that I love to use a lot that's taught by my chief investment officer is this thing called gross profit over total asset. So really is that for every dollar of total assets that you have, how much gross profit are you generating? And if that numbers improves over time, you know, it's sooner or later, the business will be profitable, right? And I think a few qualitative things I look at is maybe, um, I like things that are maybe recession proof, but you know, increasingly, I start to think that there's no such thing as recession proof. It's more like uh, recession resilient, and, you know, um, also, for example, what are some companies that are riding on a structural trend? Because, you know, despite uncertain economic conditions, because if those companies are riding on, on a, a circular trend or a structural trend, they may still have some growth. So I think growth is very important. Um, I, I consider myself as a growth investor. So I do really drill in uh, very deep into that. Uh, we talk about companies with uh, addressing market, uh, unique products or services. Um, and so very importantly, they must have a great culture. I think that's um, really key. Um, so I think my portfolio is kind of like split right now. I have companies that are small caps. I think that's where I enjoy and uh, that's where I find joy connecting with people from the micro uh, cap club as well. But I do invest in this thing called flying elephants, right? So these are like big caps that are growing uh, rapidly as well. So there's this two kind of uh, thing that I actually go for. Got it. So um. I want to I want to dive right in because there's so much to unpack there. Um, so yep. for, first things first, you know, you, as you say, you you really love to focus on the qualitative, you know. But and this is gonna be a dumb question, I have to ask it. Is you still have to do some kind of screening screening just to get to find find those first few, and then you dive deep into the qualitative, right? Exactly. Okay. So so what are some of those metrics that you look for? You say, okay, these are some of the things that you know, they screen out well for me. So now I'm going to take a deeper dive. What, what are some of those things? Um, <clears throat> so, you know, like it, it used to be very complex, the things I do, but increasingly I, I try to simplify it a lot and um, it works wonder, right? So it's amazing. Like it seems like you do less, but you get more. So um, first thing here is this, right? I would always look for a company with a high gross profit margin because if you don't have a high gross profit margin, because you see, Gross profit margin is always the profitability of the products and services that you sell. So if your gross profit margin is not high enough, it shows that um, maybe there's a lot of competitors. It shows that maybe you can't price your products competitively enough 
But if you have a high gross profit margin and you can maintain that for a couple of quarters, it shows that perhaps you have something that's unique that no one else can actually copy. And I would always believe that when a business have high, profit, high gross profit margin, it, it, it leaves a lot of room for the business to have your you know, sales and marketing, your general expenses, you know, such that when it flows down to the operating profit level, there's a lot to, to be left, you know? Like for example, um, a, a analogy that I could describe to you, it's perhaps like a funnel, right? There's a lot of water that's flowing in, but if there's a lot of leakages, all right, leakages are your costs. Then, you know, by the time it reaches the bottom, there's, there's not much water left. But you have a high gross profit margin, then you have plenty of water, even though you have some holes that's leaking out, your cost that's leaking out, you're going to still have a lot of money left for, for, for you as, as a shareholder, right? So that's one thing I look out for. And, and I think gross profit margin is something that is quite uh, uh, underrated. Not many people think uh, deeply about it, but that's how I, I, how I look at it. And, <clears throat> and the second thing I look at it is, is something really simple. I always think of it as a... As a I think investing sometimes, uh, while I used to read a lot of investing books, but what I start to realize is that to really get good in investing, it's not just reading investment books, but reading business books as well. So I will always ask myself this question, what is the greatest form of a product validation? To, to, to know that this product has a great product market fit, that the customers enjoy the product, that the business is going to do well. It's simply this, it's simply revenue growth. But I don't look on maybe let's say on a quarter to quarter, right? Let's say you can talk about like quarter one, 2020 versus quarter one, 2019, right? That's, that's going to be an easy beat, right? But what I tend to look at is sequentially, like for example, quarter one, 2020 versus quarter four, 2019, is that growth? And is the growth uh, accelerating or if the growth is being maintained? Because for a business to do that, it's going to be extremely tough. But if they can show and demonstrate that they have this trend, um, more likely than not, I think this business has certain unique characteristics. So I, I tend to use these two screeners. And I think the, the issue for me back then was that I was screening too narrowly, right? So a lot of companies don't fall into the basket. But now I try to screen loosely. And if I do see some interesting names, I will go to the website, see what they are doing. And I think that whether does it fit, fit into my criteria. So um, I think that, that um, is two things that I, I look at uh, in, in terms of screening. No, absolutely. Okay. So then now you, we now know what you screen for and how you look for it. And it sounds like it, it's sounds like you've loosened up those strings a little bit, right? <laughs> so, so now we're digging into the qualitative and you're going into look at these businesses. Cause this is what I think I really want to focus on for our interview is because it sounds like the way your process is unique, you know, in that you, you, you really want to understand as best you can the, that there's some kind of product validation, you know, that, uh, that things are recession resilient, you know? So what are some of the things then you look for from a qualitative level to make sure that that investment is something that might fit for your portfolio? Mm, okay. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think I've benefited tremendously from um, Connor Haley as well. Connor Haley runs Alta Fox Capital. So if you look at the companies that he invested in, um, so I'm, I'm not sure whether, you know, I'm not sure whether he's still invested in, in, in those companies, but if you look at maybe perhaps one of example, um, Coru Medical, right? Coru Medical. So for example, there are some people, unfortunately, they are being born with a white, cells, a white blood cells deficit. 
So meaning, you know, you need your white blood cells to regulate your body to actually fight off the bacteria. Otherwise, uh, uh, in the worst case scenario, you might die. So Coru Medical actually does a, some form of uh, injection uh, uh, device that injects uh, immunoglobulin into the body. And that helps the, help the human, um, you know, just kind of like prolong the life and just to inject sufficient white blood cells to fend off the bacteria in the body. So something that's so essential for a, a human life, right? What are the chances that it can be cut off during a recession? I think it's, it's nearly zero, right? So that's what I, I think about. That's, that's one uh, component of quality. Or the second co component of quality, um, today I, I own a, a, a small microcap called Intelli IntelliCheck. So what they do is that they help retailers, they help banks um, to fight off fraudulent activities. For example, if, if this fraud, for example, is, is roughly about maybe $5,000, right? Or let's say, for example, um, for the whole year, your company may, may have lost maybe uh, 20 million because of fraud. And if, I, if you use IntelliCheck um, service and you are only required to pay only 2 million and they have a high accuracy rate to stop all the fraudulent activities, um, you know, in this case, Robert, would you pay if you are the company? I mean, sure. Why not? Yeah, yeah. no. Yes. Okay. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so I like the companies whereby, you know, it pays for itself. This, this term called, it pays for itself because of this problem. All right. That is a $20 million problem. It can be solved by a $2 million investment in their products. Right. IntelliCheck does that. So it's an easy sell. Like I don't have to do a lot of persuasion to actually sell the product. And because of that, you know, the product is going to be, um, you know, it's going to, the adoption rate will be very, very high. So I, I like that. I like to see that as well. Um, just give you another scenario. Uh, for example, in terms of agriculture, um, in the past, people used to hire manual labor to achieve different shape, uh, rotten ap apples with the good apples. So they use visual eyes. And sometimes, you know, humans, we may not be totally accurate. So what they do is that, okay, this company is not a, uh, it's, not a it's not a small cat, but it's a huge company. It's called Kians. Um, Kians, what they have is a sensory system whereby using a sensor, they could identify the bad apples and the rotten apples. And once they're being identified, you know, down the tray, the moving tray, they'll flick out the bad apples automatically, right? With a very high accuracy rate. And, you know, compared the investment in the people, the two people you have to hire to actually sort out the apples versus the machine, the machine is way cheaper and the machine will always be more effective than human beings. So that itself is actually a very easy sell. So I, I like that. So I like businesses that pays for itself. I like businesses whereby, you know, when the salesperson come up to the business and say that, hey, you know, would you want to adopt my product? And, and on the other hand, the business is going to look at it and say, hey, you know, this is a great value proposition for my business. And it's, it's, it will be a brainless decision to adopt the solution. So that's something that I look at because something that saves money for, for you something that, that grows your revenue for you, you know, it's, it's always going to be something of an essential need. It's something going to be uh, mission critical. So it actually kind of sounds like, well, hold on real quick, actually, just want to get your uh, quick disclosure. Uh, are you a uh, shareholder of Coru Medical? You said IntelliJack you were, and Kians. Um, I'm, I'm the shareholder of IntelliCheck, uh, Kians, Coru Medical, no. No, okay, cool. Yeah. So, you know, it, it actually kind of sounds like based on, on what you just said is that you're kind of, you like to kind of look at companies that are more B2B versus some more retail plays. 
because because in the b2b there's that different there, there's a different sales process there where most businesses are always looking for ways in which to run themselves more efficiently am i am i kind of on the that track there yeah and i think you hit on the right uh right note as well um when I was starting out investing, I was investing in a lot of businesses that were serving mainly your SMB, your small medium businesses. Uh, but most often than not, I think these businesses have very limited uh, operating history or maybe they may not have a strong balance sheet. I mean, not, I mean, some do have great balance sheet, but some don't. And as a direct result, when it comes to an economic hit, right, um, some of the small medium businesses may not survive. Um, and some of them may have their own cash flow issues as well. So they may not pay up on time. And, you know, trade receivables are something that I don't really like to see it piling up. That shows that maybe you have, you have customers, but they may not be good paymasters. But for enterprise customer, you know, they, are, they have established history. They have great, I mean, they themselves have their own customers, which are, you know, like really strong customers as well. And, and the beauty of serving uh, enterprise customers, I, I feel, is that if you have convinced one segment of their department that your product works, and depending on how big the enterprise customers are, you know, they might actually adopt the product for you and, and, and you, know, you know, sell your product to other departments as well if it's relevant. Or maybe, um, you know, it always pays to, to have an enterprise customer because why? It's great referral, right? You can tell anyone that, you know, you have this, maybe uh, uh, Microsoft as a customer, right? That, that shows a lot about the product because people will just think, okay, if you have Microsoft as a customer, meaning Microsoft must have validated you, must have assessed your product and to know that your product is really good before they, they use you. And um, so one thing that I've learned is this thing called the kingpin strategy. It's like playing chess, right? The moment, you know, don't, don't chase for the small customers. Chase for the enterprise customer because once you chase the enterprise customer, you put the customer's logo on your company website. You know, just a matter of days, all the small medium businesses will come calling up on your phones. You know, they, they realize, oh, okay, custom, uh, Microsoft is using you. You are being validated and they will come to you naturally. So once you chase the enterprise customer and you have gotten them, your small medium businesses will just come to you naturally. So that is usually a much easier sales process. So it's more like positioning yourself to be. Uh, a product that enterprise customers will, will use and you enjoy uh, faster, you enjoy, you know, you will not have this issue of, you know, your customers not paying up and it's more resilient even during a economic uh, recession. Got it. Okay. So that, that was a great clarification right there because it, it, it seemed like that's where you were going with, with your strategy and that was the type of companies from a qualitative level and a business strategy we're looking at. So, okay. So now I want to take it to the next level because you mentioned actually a little bit earlier in the interview that you really like to understand the corporate culture of the companies that you're invested in and getting yep. to know management. And, you know, uh, we were talking offline how you just took an awesome trip out here to the U S and hung out with a few microcap club members and took you around. And, you know, I, I, I have to ask, I mean, you're based in Singapore, you're invested in some, you know, North American business or just your global investor, really. I mean, so how are you able to manage this, importance for you of talking with management, understanding management, understanding the culture, and then also maybe sometimes your, your geologic location. Yeah. Um, you know, Robert, I, I, I felt a bit sad because uh, when I started out investing, I was investing in a lot of Singapore companies. 
you know, Singapore is not a, not a big country right, as compared to uh, you guys. And a lot of companies, they tend to be uh, value traps or they tend to be companies that don't compound value for shareholders. Um, <clears throat> but I was quite grateful because I, I made a switch in my mind and it wasn't easy because there wasn't a lot of people that I can speak to about US companies, right, in, in Singapore. So uh, when I started going to US, I was kind of uh, confused and that's where I found an incredible, incredible place uh, called Twitter. You know, that's where, you know, I get to meet you guys. I get to see the people you guys talk to. And I think um, it's not normal for Asian to just reach out to people. We tend to be more reserved, more introverted as compared to Americans who are more extroverted. So, but I made it a point that, you know, if I want to grow, I want to do better, I, got to, I need to meet more people and I got to maintain great relationships with them. So if I do see people that I, I respect a lot uh, on Twitter, I would just send out a message, um, just really sharing with them, telling them how much I appreciate their work. And uh, once in a while, you know, I do really make it a point to just maintain connections. And I think my life has been made a lot better because, you know, even though I'm Singapore, in Singapore, I, I, you know, I just feel more aligned to the things that you guys are sharing on, on Twitter and also on your website as well. So I think um, you know, that, that isn't a, a big issue for me. Um, for me, I'm a bit, I think I'm so committed to the process because today, um, even as I run a company, I think um, as I'm contributing, sharing information, um, I think I have to continue growing. I need to grow for the people that I teach, right? So um, despite some weird hours, I was calling management at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., I, I feel it's fine. I feel it's great. And I feel that um, I've learned a lot as well. But more importantly, I think there's some different um, way on how we think, um, being Singaporeans and Americans, how we think. Because in Singapore, you know, I, I never knew this, but uh, in Singapore, most of us, when we go to fast, fast food, right? We would just eat there or we just take away. But I didn't know that you know, in, in, in America, drive through business for uh, uh, fast food restaurants tend to be up to 50% of their total sales. So that was something unique for me. And increasingly, you know, I started to learn more about America, how it works. And I think uh, what really made everything different for me was finally telling my team and say, you know, um, let's go to America. All right. So that was uh, being done in uh, February. I, I had a lot of great fun um, because we also want to make it work, right? We didn't want to make it just a fun trip. We want to make it a work trip as well. So our schedule was pretty tight. Uh, we were able to meet some incredible people. Ian met us, Michael Liu met, uh, met us, uh, Gordon Bate, uh, author of Joys of Commodity, uh, met us as well. And when I started to enjoy some of the fast food over Chick-fil-A, right? uh, In-N-Out Burger, it was so different for us. And uh, seeing how things work really there and meeting the locals, um, that made a hell lot of difference for us in our perspective in investing. Got it. Well, what, let's dig right. Let's, let's follow up on that. What, what were some of those things that helped that, you know, on that trip you were able to bring home that, that helped a lot in your investing thesis and your, your way in which you evaluate companies? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so one of which, which is, uh, I actually own shares in uh, power technology. So they are like a cloud, uh, POS kind of a, a business and they serve enterprise customers. So they have Starbucks, Wendy's, Dairy Queen uh, as their customers. And to me, if I did not know that drive-through business is such a big portion of, their, of, their, of, of the restaurant sales, 
I would be thinking to myself, okay, COVID-19 hits, uh, restaurants going to have no sales because everyone's closed up, right? But then, you know, now that I know there's drive-through business, so I know that the impact's not going to be hit that badly, right? So, so um, as a disclaimer, again, I own shares in uh, power technology. And sometimes I do know of like the big banks that you guys have, uh, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, uh, things like that, Chase Bank as well. So there are some businesses that I, that I own that have these banks as their, as their customers. And, uh, you know, for them to actually roll out, I actually got to see firsthand the presence of locations of these banks, right? And that really helped me ascertain that, hey, you know, they have great visibility, they have great location, and they will do well, okay? So, so that really uh, helped me a lot. And um, maybe, this, maybe this isn't going to be very surprising to, to some of the viewers over here. Um, you know, so, so I, I study history and geography, but really being down there, seeing how big America is, really, you know, made me understand how big the addressable market for some companies are. Because if I'm going to think of Singapore, I'm going to say, okay, I just take a population size, I do some estimates, I know, okay, this is probably the sales you can generate once you hit certain saturation rate. But when I travel to America and, and you know, there are certain states where we drive a lot, we start to see a lot of businesses from different places. And that gave me a, a you know, kind of like a conviction to say, hey, you know, even, even this company I'm investing right now grows 10 times, it isn't a, a stretch mark, you know, it could go even further because just looking at how big America is. So, so that were, were some of the factors that uh, have helped me a lot. For sure. I, I, and I'll give you a bit of piece of advice. You know, we always, it's fun because, you know, I do a lot of interviews with CEOs, you know, you always, you always want to be careful when, because I like to ask the, you know, what's the size of your total addressable market? You know, there's, it, it's, it's, it's so funny you bring it up because there's times where you get that crazy, you know, you know, collectively, you know, if we hit all these different verticals, yeah, no, we'll get the get a 20, $23 billion market. They're like, oh, really? Oh, that's your total addressable market, 20, 23 billion. Okay. All right. That made, yeah, I guess if you hit like a less than 1% of that, you'll, yeah, okay. You know, that's, <laughs> sounds like you might have a business there. So that's pretty interesting that you, that you noticed that. But I, I think it, it pays to be skeptical as well. Like something that has to be realistic uh, and something that, uh, 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 could be executed upon, right? So I think it's important. Well, I think actually, I feel like it's to your advantage the fact that you know you're in Singapore, you know, you're based in Singapore, you know Singapore, uh, the economy there. So you're you're actually probably more used to being able to put together more, I guess, modest total addressable markets. So you can you can model out more realistic ones and then be like, okay, all right, so that's what they're saying their total addressable market is in the U.S. All right, well, let me. Let, let, if, even if, let, let's assume it's half that, you know, will, will that still make sense? Is that still, you know, will they still be able to address some of that market, even if it's half that, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, sounds funny, <laughs> Like in Singapore, we are all taught to, uh, because there's a lot of internet scams, um, a lot of stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's everywhere every country but singapore takes a very proactive approach to tell to inform people of potential scams online here and there so we grew up in this culture that you know let, let's be really cautious about things that we see out there uh, because you know things were uh, you know it's not what they say but what they do and how they're executing it so um that really helped a lot and i think so so i, I met a guy called leon lin a uh, fantastic guy as well uh he was uh, previously in Singapore, but went to US and he gave up a very he gave up the prospect of a high paying job to actually get there in America. So 
for me, I wait, then he shared with me something which um really hit me really hard. He said that for a lot of Singaporeans, we tend not to speak out. We tend not, not to want to meet new people. And that actually is one of the biggest downsides. So knowing that, you know, I actually, you know, hearing that from him, you know, it, it gave me even more drive to say that, hey, you know, in Singapore, actually, we are very diverse. Um, even though we are Asian countries, we have, um, I think there's this former uh, co-founder of Facebook that actually decided to base uh, himself in, in Singapore. And in Singapore, uh, to be honest, have also been benefiting from the fund flows from Hong Kong to Singapore because we are known like um, uh, two financial hubs that are very close to each other. So actually, there are more expats coming in, more foreigners coming in. And, and it's my hope, uh, my dream is to connect all these people together to to be part of a community whereby we can share a lot of ideas because increasingly I'm starting to see a lot more Americans coming to Singapore. So uh, hopefully there could be uh, some ideas flowing in and out. I think that'll be really great. I agree. That would be so cool. But I have to comment, you know, you, you're an enigma, dude. I mean, look, you, uh, you said that most Singaporeans are, are, are conservative by nature. Look yeah. at you. You're going after U S microcaps that, uh, some might still be a hope and a prayer. I mean, you know, you're the definition of risk. You're the riskiest guy in Singapore. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so one, one thing that I've learned um, is that if you are doing what everyone is doing, then you expect the same results as everyone. You just want to do, you got to do different things uh, to have different results. So um, I think um, Ian have also shared with me that, you know, most microcaps are like concept stocks. They, you know, management can't really execute. They're just... Uh, pumping up, being very promotional. I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's sort of risky over there, but um, that's where the opportunities are. You know, you could really find the good ones where people just categorize as microcaps as highly risky. Uh, one of the companies I purchased last year was Himalcare, which I've done uh, tremendously well. Uh, I think it was two years ago. Yeah, uh, got, got privatized by Charles, Charles River. Um, so that is trading on OTC. It's one of the highest definition of risk, right? Uh, but that goes to show that uh, you know, uh, there, are, there are gems among the rocks. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, no, no question about it. And, you know, that's why, that's why we do the work, right? You know, and uh, that's, that's why you make a trip to the U.S. because you know you, if you turn over enough rocks, you're going to find, you're going to find a diamond in the rough at, at some point, especially. I, yeah. mean, I mean, there's so, there's so many possibilities out there, you know, it's just, but you're right. You know, there are a lot that you just have to be, you know, you have to be a little skeptical, a little careful. And, uh, you know, the more you do it, the more you'll, you'll, you'll understand and, and kind of know what to look out for. So, yep. um, so Kelvin, I, I, we, we're now at my, my favorite question to ask. So uh, I, I got to know from you, what, what investing experience would you say taught you the most in your career? Uh, sounds a bit painful. Um, okay. So there was this company that I purchased that is in a, <clears throat> that was way back. Um, it's called, so it's going to sound a bit foreign to a lot of people. It's called uh, Zhong Ao Home. Um, yeah. So basically it's a property management company. And we, you would think that um, it's going to be, a, I mean, it's a decent business. It's trading at very low multiples. Uh, that got me attracted. And, you know, now I don't look at low multiples companies anymore because they tend to have, um, the reason why they're trading at low multiple, there could be some reasons, right? So, uh, for me, I realized that, and I mean, I should have caught that, right? Um, people, Chinese who buy properties in China, they just bought the property and they just leave it there and they 
may not stay there. Like a person could have like 20, 30 over properties throughout China. So when, when we talk about Zhongao is a property management company, how do they get their revenue? They get their revenue through collecting um, uh, property management fees. So when the guy is not there for almost two years, how are you going to collect the property management fee? And there's no law to say that if the person doesn't pay up the doesn't pay property management fee, you can seize his property because there's no such thing in China. And even you do that, it may take a long process. So while the company was reporting very good numbers, uh, pretty decent uh, ROEs, uh, trading at very good multiples, but the core question is this, right? When, when I realized much later on is that they had this issue of, of uh, trade receivables, right? It was piling up, it was get, it's, it's already past the credit terms and they're not in pet yet. And some of them are past six months, nine months. And, uh, soon enough, you know, they have to write off certain receivables. And this is the reason why they've been trading at low multiples. So when I look at them, I thought it was interesting. I, I bought a bit. Uh, actually, not a bit, but quite quite a bit. That was like some time back. So um, later on, I realized, yeah, that's an issue. And that really got me to, to always look at the aging trade receivables analysis. Uh, I think that's something very easy to understand. And that also shows, you know, you have good paymaster, you have good clients as well. Um, that's one thing. And second thing is... Um, there was a company uh, that I bought in Singapore. Okay, um, so, so the thing was when I when I bought the company, it was good. I was quite hopeful about the business, and you know the funny thing is that eventually the business turned out the way I wanted it to be, but I did not get to enjoy the gains because of one reason. Um, there was this quarter where they didn't sort of do quite well, but the business was still on track. But the business plunged by 50%. And to me, uh, even though back then, you know, it was already um, undervalued, it got even more undervalued. But this, my state of mind wasn't just right because every single day you start to see your loss from, let's say, uh, four figures rising to five figures. The loss just kept compounding, right? Reverse compounding. It gets to you and you just wonder, wow, what if this continues going down and down and down and down? And what would you be doing then? You know, can you live with it? And to me, I was uh, in such a maybe a, a state of mind that I wasn't thinking right. And even though it was so cheap that I was just not in a good state of mind and I just sold my shares. And, you know, three months later, it went back to its original price. Um, I, I, I lost over like $80,000 80, over there. Uh, that was in the earlier days. So extremely, extremely painful. Um, so one, so, so two lessons so far. One is maybe... Um, the trade receivables issue. Second is really, um, you know, your, your emotional st state. And what I realized for me, uh, what I should have done is that, you know, when it comes to investing, a lot of us tend to like to invest by ourselves, right? The mistakes we have, we tend to keep to our heart. Uh, the way we analyze certain companies, we tend to keep to our heart. And if, if a person challenge our thesis, we tend to get defensive about it, right? And you try to defend it, you try to pluck a lot of information to, 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 to kind of defend your thesis. But to me, what I realized that successful investors, they tend to have good sounding boards. They have a community of friends that they can actually ask, you know. So, I will, so today what I've changed for me is that I will actually present my thesis to people that I trust. If you have gone through five, six people who are competent investors and they, and they tell me that it's sort of good, I think the chances of success will be higher. And, you know, instead of finding information to defend a thesis. Today, I'm going to say this. What am I missing out? What are some things that you think I could improve on my thesis? Would you think that 
uh, my thesis would play out, you know, in your in your line of experience, uh, what's something you think I could improve on? What are some things, the, the gaps that I have? So I think um, every one of us go through uh, mistakes. And the thing is that if we don't reflect, mistakes will just continue compounding, right? But, uh, you know, I think being investors is not just analyzing every day. But what if today, you know, just going out to a nice a lake, walk, you know, think about the mistakes, reflect. What could I have done better? What was the mistake? And, you know, your mind works in a mysterious way. Next time when you're about to make the mistake, somehow your gut feel will tell you, hey, this is not right. You know, you press want to step back a bit and really look at it. And so there are some companies where I don't exactly know what's wrong, but my gut feel tells me something is wrong. And I, I step back from it and I didn't invest. And, you know, the, the business actually turned out to be terrible businesses subsequently. So there are some things where you can't really um, explain, but I think over time it gets better. And I think that this whole process of learning mistakes can be really shortened when you have great mentors, when you have great community, right? When you hang out with great people and you learn from them continuously and, and reflect and write maybe some form of journey. It, it helped me tremendously. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it sounds like it sounds like your, your gap really shortened once you were like, okay, it's time to realize that investing is a team sport and not so much uh, tennis right? But, you know, <laughs> you know, it's not, not that individual sport anymore. You know, it, once, once you realize that you can rely on, there's other people that this is a win-win game here, you know, especially, if, especially when you're, you're dealing with other, other investors that are more long-term, like, and have a similar mindset as you, you know, if you look, if, if you don't necessarily want to talk to the short-term investor that might be looking at the same company because there's, you know, it's shorter time horizon, you're not totally sure how long they're actually going to stay in it. So their thesis is a little you know, different, right? Exactly. True. Yeah. All right. Well, we're there, dude. Uh, Kelvin, where, where can my audience go and find more information about you? Um, follow you on Twitter. Uh, do you have a website for, for people to also go to as well? Um, currently, uh, I'm actually uh, building a website. So uh, for now, I think uh, follow me on the slingshot tab, right? So uh, um, that would be great. And, you know, um, Robert, I've been enjoying your podcast a lot, and you know, I, I I'm very thankful that I'm very thankful that you know I think uh, Americans, you guys are really amazing. You guys share very openly, and that really helped to make every investor out there a better investor every single day. I I'm really happy. Yeah, no, I'm I'm just I'm just very thankful that you're a listener, and uh, yeah, no, I'm very open with the fact that I'm a terrible investor. So I. I I'm not stopping for any time soon until I get better. Hopefully one day we'll see. But, uh, but Kelvin, th thank you, man. I really do appreciate you taking the time to do this interview with me. I, I really do appreciate it. And uh, stay safe. I uh, look forward to meeting you one day. You know, I think we, we already made plans on going to Singapore at some point. So, well, <laughs> you know, I, I definitely hope to, to, uh, to uh, take a trip out there, but if not next time in the U S uh, you know, we, I look forward to meeting you in person. Yeah, I'll bring you to the best food in Singapore. <laughs> yes, let's do it. All right. Thank you, Kelvin. I really appreciate it. Thank you.